0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today, the day of recording, it is Tuesday, the 19th of April 2022, uh, and I'm joined here in Seoul in the NK News recording studio by Dr. Christopher Green of the International Crisis Group. We'll be talking about structural and institutional risks on the Korean Peninsula at present, amongst other things. Before we get started, I'd like to remind all of you listening, please, to leave a review about this podcast and a rating wherever you can. And why do I do this? It's so that people can discover our podcast more easily. Uh, Spotify allows ratings but not reviews. Apple Podcast allows both. So do please leave uh, whatever you can. Secondly, it has come to my attention that some people listening to this podcast have not yet subscribed to nknews.org. We do encourage you to consider buying a subscription. It is fine journalism. Chris, you're a reader of nknews.org, aren't you? I certainly am. Yeah. Uh, and there's some good stuff there. Would you recommend it to people? I would. All right, so get on to nknews.org and think about buying a subscription. An annual deal is less than a dollar a day, uh, which is, uh, supports all of the excellent journalism put out by my colleagues here, the reporters at NK News. Thirdly, you can follow NK News.org on Twitter and myself at JackOZ. And for podcast questions and feedback, you can tweet us uh, or email at podcast at nknews. My guest today is Dr. Christopher Green, who leads International Crisis Group's work on Korea delivering timely analysis of inter-Korean alliance and regional political and security concerns. He worked for the crisis group in an identical role from 2017 to 2019 and then returned in 2021. Chris also lectures on Korea at Leiden University in the Netherlands, where I got my master's degree, and is currently here in Korea, in South Korea on a fellowship at the Institute for Far Eastern Studies, part of Kyongnam University. You can find Chris on Twitter at D-E-S-T underscore Pyongyang, that's destination or destroy Pyongyang, whatever you wish. And some of his ICG output you can find at crisisgroup.org. Welcome back on the show, Chris. Thanks for having me. You were last on the podcast, our uh, faithful listeners, most faithful listeners will remember, on episode 55 in April 2019, a little bit over three years ago. Uh, At that time, as I said in the intro, you were uh, International Crisis Group's career man And we talked about diplomacy, inter-Korean ties and sanctions. Since then, you've left the ICG, you've finished your PhD, my alma mater, come back to ICG, and now you're visiting Korea on that fellowship I mentioned before. You've been very busy. How does it feel to be back here and back on the show? Well, it feels wonderful to be back here and wonderful to be on the show. It's
1: always very valuable to be on the ground.
0: Wherever that ground may be. The episode title chosen by my bosses for episode 55 was How to Talk So North Korea Will Listen. And in the three and a bit years since then, after the failure of the Hanoi summit, has anybody talked in a way that would make North Korea listen, Chris?
1: Well, if you look at the situation now, rising tensions, missile tests and so on and so forth, you can only conclude that no, nobody has talked in a way that would make North Korea listen. But at the same time, you have to wonder whether North Korea was open to listening Mm. or not. So we shouldn't make this a one-sided question.
0: That is a, a very good point that we shouldn't make it a one-sided question, yeah. Of course, we, uh, we don't know what kind of back-channel communication there is that's going on and, and uh, stuff that's under the table, but at least publicly, North Korea hasn't actually engaged in any dialogue with, uh, with South Korea or the United States, nor has it showed any intention to uh, since the failure of Hanoi. Would that be an, an accurate summary?
1: Well, if you include the Stockholm meeting at the end of 2019, mm, maybe okay. that's when we should uh, start from. Uh, I think you raise a good point that there is inevitably back-channel communication going on. Mm -hmm. We don't know what it's about, and we don't know what the intensity is, but that kind of thing has been going on more or less consistently uh, for decades. Nevertheless, in terms of public-facing, kind of open diplomacy, no, we haven't seen any of that since the beginning of
0: 2020. Yeah, okay, and uh, that's quite a while now, already two years. Now, having you on the podcast uh, exactly, this episode will go out a, exactly a week after my interview with Brandon Gauthier, with whom I spoke about his monumental project of comparative biography of six dictators in their younger years, including Kim Sung. Uh, having you on this episode seems like fortuitous timing, although, to be fair, as we sit here in this studio to record this conversation, the release of the Brandon Gauthier episode is still in the future, so you haven't heard my conversation with him. Nonetheless, that being said, over the 10 years that we've known each other and it has been a full decade, uh, you have often spoken against the great man view of history in which one individual has an outsized impact on the flow of international events. Would that be uh, accurate?
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe I have occasionally been a bit too forceful in my views there. I do think we need to push back against this idea that great men are what drive history forward. But that isn't to say that an individual, given the authority uh, and the, the correct moment and opportunity cannot make an outsized impact on the the progress of history. I'm just saying that that is not the way that politics and societies normally function.
0: Right, and and sometimes, as a, uh, in the way of giving a corrective, we sometimes push the pendulum too far back the other way, and 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 that can happen too. Yeah, sure. So in the last four years of events on the Korean Peninsula, beginning roughly with the, uh, well, actually, we could go to the beginning of of 2018 with Kim Jong-un's New Year's speech and then to the PyeongChang Olympics détente and the various summits and letters and blowing up of a building and so on. Uh, Much media and analysis has focused on the personalities, politics and powers of each Kim Jong-un, Donald Trump uh, and Moon Jae-in. Now, obviously, it would take much too long to go on a blow by blow of the last four years. But can we talk about the constraints on action that all three sides have faced and may still be facing, uh, that is North Korea, South Korea and the United States, that make finding an agreement that works for all three nations uh, almost impossibly hard.
1: Yes, yeah, sure. This is, the, this is the, the question of the sort of the international political economy of northeast Asian peace, I guess.
0: Now, for our layman at home, political economy is defined as what?
1: It's the way politics and economics interact. Initially, political economy was about the the, the functioning of of the state and the nation. But there's international political economy, which is uh, to do with the international arena.
0: Okay. All right. So having now defined that, walk us through uh, where are we uh, in in terms of uh, the the constraints, uh, institutional constraints on the three players and how that hampers finding an agreement.
1: I don't know how many of the listeners today
0: were also
1: listening to episode 55 so many years ago
0: you and I went back and listened to it uh, we, we so did. We, we do encourage people who, who want a, a full you know completists should definitely go back and listen to it
1: sure but plenty of people may not have time for that yep. so uh, let's quickly remind ourselves mm. of what we said which was that crisis groups perspective at the beginning of the 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 period of diplomacy in 2018 and 19 was that you have to meet not only uh, the needs of one side in the, in the process, but the economic and political needs and military, uh, needs of all the partners or the actors in, in the conflict in Northeast Asia, North Korea, South Korea, the United States yes, as you said, Jacko, but also China and Japan. Mm. And because there are so many actors with so many interests playing a role here, that does indeed make finding an agreement extremely difficult, But you have to take into account the interests of all the actors if you're going to even try and reach an agreement on the Korean peninsula or for the Korean peninsula rather
0: yes so when you've got president moon and president uh, trump in a room or uh, chairman kim and president trump in a room how does that uh, what constrains them in their ability to find a way forward with each other a couple
1: of weeks ago was it a couple of weeks ago maybe last week even you had the former state department diplomat kenneth kunona's on here yeah uh, and he talked about for example the role of the military as a relatively conservative actor in North Korea and the constraints that the military's requirements and demands place upon Kim Jong-un. You know, part of the reason why I push back against the great man theory uh, of history is that when you're looking at autocracies or authoritarian systems like North Korea and China, it can be very easy to fall back upon the position that the leader has essentially untrammeled power right. and can do essentially anything he or she, usually he, wants to in the moment. But that isn't true. I mean, we take it as read that in a democracy, because we can see it in our newspapers and on the TV, we can see the institutional battles that go on to uh, that lead to the political outcomes uh, that we see. But in these autocracies, especially places like North Korea, where information is hard to come by, yep. it can be very difficult to identify uh, those institutional constraints, Uh, but they're definitely there and we need to take account of them.
0: Well, now, I guess it's a, it is a commonly held belief, and certainly it's commonly expressed, uh, not by yourself though, but that 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 Kim Jong-un sits at the top of a pyramid of power by himself and that he does have indeed untrammeled power, and certain things are pointed to uh, as tests of that, or at least pieces of evidence that might prove that, such as, for example, the decision to, uh, to kill his uncle or the decision to invite Dennis Rodman a number of times to North Korea, that something that would be hard to, to make sense of from an institutional perspective, but only make sense of... Uh, from Kim acting out of his own will.
1: Now, we don't know precisely what happened that led to the death of Kim Jong-un's uncle. Uh, we Jang song ha- Tech we're talking about him. Jang song Tech, indeed. We have some evidence that points in one direction or another. For example, at a meeting not so long after the death of Jang song Tech, Kim Jong-un appeared and he looked ghastly, basically, compared to how he normally looked at the time. Now, that could be just because he had a cold. I don't know. He may just simply have been sick. But the interpretation is that that indicates the limits on his power, that he may not even have wanted to see his uncle Mm. killed. Now, because we have such limited information on the North Korean leadership, we can't be sure about that. But it's a good example of how potentially North Korean institutions within the state structure constrain Kim Jong-un and maybe pushed him to, at any rate, eliminate his
0: own uncle. Now, you just said institutions, plural. We, we, you've mentioned uh, the military as a sort of a conservative restraining force. What other institutions are there that, uh, that limit what Kim Jong-un can do?
1: Well, in addition to existing institutions, such as the military, yes, the security and intelligence services, with their conservative view of state security and what the state should do, be ready to give away in exchange uh, for other benefits. So there's these institutions there. Then there's the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And then there are the party institutions that really matter in North Korea more than uh, government ministries, such as, of course, the, 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 the famous Organization and Guidance Department mm-hmm. of the Party, which, as the institution which governs the extent to which other organizations in the North Korean hierarchy can access the leader has an outsized role to play now in kim jong-un's case with the passing well and any autocrat's case with the passing of time assuming they do their job well and build their power well they will gain more authority and a less constrained form of authority over time so the the power for example of the organization and guidance department of the party will diminish the more authority kim jong-un has the more control he has over that institution so History has its own constraints. Uh, The passing of time brings its own constraints or removes them, depending on circumstances. And then there are the institutions of the North Korean state that we just mentioned. And by mentioning the military, the intelligence services, and some party departments, we are highlighting the most powerful parts of the North Korean state.
0: Now, uh, in uh, my interview with uh, Steve Began, he uh, told me about the frequent and regular changes of his negotiating partner from the North Korean side. Is that something that we would imagine that uh, Kim Jong-un would be doing, would be sort of swapping out uh, Chair Son-hee for whoever it was that replaced her and and vice versa? Or is that something that would be, you know, a result of institutional uh, factors?
1: I think we can hypothesize that Kim Jong-un is the one who made the final decisions on those matters. But who has Kim Jong-un's ear? Mm. Uh, partly that is the power of institutions like the organization and guidance department or the propaganda and agitation department and of course family ties Mm -hmm. Uh, it doesn't matter what official position kim yo jong has that's kim jong-un's sister of course right but she has access to it she has access and she has trust by virtue of family ties which is a very strong form of trust yeah so these people have kim jong-un's ear and if they're saying you know that she might not be such a reliable negotiator perhaps you want to swap her out for somebody else Mm. for example then that can lead kim jong-un to lose faith in that person and 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 change them now that doesn't mean that on some other occasions kim jong-un might not have simply arbitrarily decided he dislikes that person and wishes to kick them out of their position right but it can happen other ways it doesn't have to be a virtue of totalitarian decision making on the part of kim jong-un
0: Ultimately, of course, uh, as you've hinted at a number of times in our conversation, uh, we're, we struggle with that, uh, that opaqueness of the North Korean system, that we don't have access to the information. So, at the, uh, you know, we're limited to saying things like, uh, it could be this, it could be that, and there, there's some elements of speculation in that. I mean, are there any things that we can say for sure about how the institutions of, uh, of North Korea work?
1: There are things we can say for sure, but all too often we can only say them for sure quite a long time after the event, ah. right? When we see, for example, uh, defectors from the North Korean political system yep. come to South Korea and reveal what was happening on the inside right. at the time when X, Y, or Z event occurred. Yeah. Uh, that That is incredibly valuable, though, yeah. because although it doesn't give us information that we can instrumentalize in the moment mm-hmm. to influence events, The North Korean system has its own institutional logic, as we have alluded to here. And by having that historical information about how things were done not that long ago in the grand sweep of history, we can apply that knowledge to our understanding of how things are happening today, even though we lack specific actionable intelligence in the moment.
0: So for example, we had defector accounts that told us about how if I remember correctly, Kim Jong Il formed and strengthened the Organization and Guidance Department to basically take control over the the rest of the structures in North Korea for him.
1: Well, that's right. And then we have uh, Hwang Jang Yop's memoir, which, which you translated, which I translated, which notes that he told Kim Jong Il, or at least he claims to have told Kim Jong Il. Of course, this is not a, a fully objective account; right. it's his subjective view of what happened. But he says in his memoir that he told Kim Jong-il that if he's not careful, the OGD, we should probably refer to it hereafter because mm. organization and guidance very is a little bit unwieldy, yeah. the OGD could end up being too powerful mm. and that Kim Jong-il could end up unable to control it. Now, whether that happened or not is an open question. But that was something that Hwang did caution him on uh, early in the period when Kim Jong-il was using that institution to build his own authority in the state structure.
0: Do we have any indication that after this warning by Huang jong perhaps more recently, maybe in the time of Kim Jong-un, that uh, the wings of the OGD were clipped, so to speak, that uh, that there was some corrective there?
1: There was an infamous period in which a, one particular senior uh, defector, who is now disgraced for unrelated reasons, said that because Kim Jong-un was such a young and inexperienced leader, Mm. essentially, to boil it down. The OGD, which was run by departmental heads who were Kim Jong-il's old school friends, would have too much power and Kim Jong-un would have too little understanding Mm -hmm. of how to get things done in the North Korean system. Like a kind of regency. Yes. And that as a result, the conservative, the ultra-conservative, former school friends of Kim Jong-il, would be essentially running the country, and the OGD would essentially be the de facto leadership of North Korea. I think, in fact, I I heard this from several senior defectors privately, that the narrative there was reasonable at the time, but the permanence of it was oversold. So we can say, as I mentioned earlier, that as Kim Jong-un acquires authority over time, Mm -hmm. so his dependence upon those elderly conservative friends of Kim Jong-il declines, and he may even eventually acquire the authority to purge them if he so wishes, and there are arguments that he may have done so uh, in several cases, or demoted them or sent them elsewhere, all in order to bring his own people in and to reform the the state structure in such a way as improve implementation of his own views of, of various policy matters.
0: Now, I guess that's one of the the mistakes in thinking that we as humans make, not just about North Korea, but about many things, that if if X is true now, it it will always be true.
1: Yes, exactly. There was a famous analysis of South Korean politics at the time of Moon's election in Mm. 2017 that suggested that the conservatives would be out of power for a decade. Mm. And yet if you're still here in Korea on May the 10th, you'll find that's not true. (laughs) So, yes, um, history history is not necessarily a good guide to the future.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Now, uh, moving away from North Korea towards the uh, the United States, uh, the former President Donald Trump, of course, had an unorthodox way of dealing with world leaders and other nations, uh, very much a a top-down, personality-centered approach. Uh, But would you still argue that he also was constrained, uh, even while he strained to do what previous American presidents either could not or would not do? Uh,
1: Yes. I mean, let us we don't want to dwell on this perhaps for too long, but Mm. let's take, by way of example, the end-of-war declaration Mm. discussion which was the idea that the Americans and the North Koreans and potentially South Korea and China too could issue an end of war declaration declaring the Korean War to be over, as we know the Korean War ended on an armistice in 1953. That would, in theory, trigger or incentivize, catalyze talks, improve relations between the various parties, and lead to more durable agreements later on. And what was the reason why they were focusing on an end of war declaration? Well, partly because Donald Trump and uh, others could issue that in a non-binding way. It wasn't legally binding. Mm. It didn't have to pass through Congress. It could it's be not done like a treaty. It could be done on on the president's individual fiat if if that was deemed right. desirable. And part of the reason why they had to focus on an end of war declaration is because it would be very hard for the Trump or any other administration to get through a real end to the Korean War, legally binding to get it through Congress, mm. absent denuclearization. And in this case, they wanted to front load the end of, end of the war declaration in order to facilitate more durable agreements later on that could include denuclearization, hypothetically.
0: And finally, to South Korea's outgoing President Moon Jae-in. He's leaving in a couple of weeks. As you mentioned, on May 10th, we'll have a new president. He's leaving still with a, a high level of support for an outgoing South Korean president. Would you agree with that? Yes. Uh, and South Korea, under its constitution, has a strong uh, executive president, uh, presidential power. He went to Pyongyang and spoke before a large crowd of North Koreans promising peace and joint prosperity. What was it that constrained him in his ability to make negotiations and deals? President Moon said
1: very early on in his tenure, it became very clear that he would not move on economic relationships with North Korea unless international sanctions that constrained the ability of other actors to engage North Korea in economic projects unless those sanctions were removed. So what he was saying was, we prioritise our role in the international liberal order. We prioritise our trustworthy stakeholder position in the UN and in other webs of institutions, including its alliance with the United States, which mm. can scarcely be ignored. Yep. And that as, for as long as those constraints are in place, we will not go further, he then set about attempting to create a situation where those constraints could be removed. I have no doubt that President Moon wanted um, to engage in economic partnerships with with the North Koreans, but this wasn't possible in the context of the international constraints he faced at the time, and as a consequence, it didn't happen.
0: Is that perhaps why he didn't he chose not to lift South Korea's unilateral May 24th measures against North Korea? Well,
1: well, perhaps. But I find those measures, they're, well, largely irrelevant, right, mm. because they were put in place in 2010. Yep. And the Kaesong Industrial Complex, by way of example, continued to operate until 2016. Right. So evidently, those unilateral sanctions were not deemed to stop South Korea from engaging in that kind of, of, of economic activity at Kaesong.
0: No, but it, it's often um, irrelevant but symbolic gestures you know, that help move these things along or keep these processes alive, isn't it?
1: Well, that's true. But at the end of the day, I think Moon embodies a certain reality that if your words and promises end up getting out too far ahead of your ability to implement, huh, to make good on those words and promises, you will probably end up getting yourself in trouble. Hmm. Which is not to say that President Moon shouldn't have tried. Mm-hmm. I mean, and Lord knows he did try, he did for, try. for many years. Um, but just to say that at times, and I think you mentioned his visit to Pyongyang, at yep. times, the things he said he wanted to do, the things he said he would do, were pretty far out mm. ahead of his ability to actually do them. And that caused him trouble in the end.
0: Is there space for individual leaders to make a significant difference to negotiations and deal making, regardless of the constraints around them?
1: Yes. As I said earlier, I want to row back a little bit on my complete dismissal of the idea that individuals can make a difference in history. As I said, if given time and opportunity and resources, an individual leader with a conviction can make a significant difference to the course of history. I'm just saying that in general, Mm. the constraints are underplayed and the individual agency is overplayed when we discuss these things.
0: Uh, Particularly in media, right? Yes, absolutely, in media. Although not here at NK News, of course. We do look at institutional things.
1: Heaven forfend.
0: Uh, If the International Crisis Group were advising uh, one, two, or three of these leaders I just mentioned, what would be the counsel it would give? uh, I realize I'm talking a little bit in a hypothetical, unrealistic past here, given that Moon is leaving and Trump's already left office. Uh, What would be the counsel it would give on how to get the best out of a deal that is still workable for all parties uh, and faces the least institutional constraints or friction?
1: We have to understand that to make any kind of plan at this moment in time would be a hostage to fortune because North Korea is at the beginning, Mm. relatively close to the beginning, of a cycle of escalation and tensions raising. We don't know where that will go. Mm -hmm. Will they conduct missile tests over Japan, Right. right? Will they go back to nuclear testing? Those things will make a huge difference to what kind of deal may even be possible a year down the line. So speaking in more general terms, I want to go back to the point I made earlier on, that we do at least have to take into account the political economy of the actors involved Mm -hmm. and making sure that we create a deal or a process that at least addresses all the interests that the various actors have.
0: Now, yesterday I went back and listened to uh, episode 55 in which you previously appeared where we spoke shortly before the second Trump-Kim summit in Hanoi, and you made the point that it was necessary to institutionalize the talks with North Korea in order to make them sustainable. Have talks failed and stalled because they were not institutionalized in the way that you recommended?
1: Uh, I can't say that that was the single factor that caused the talks to collapse, but it sure didn't help. And I think most of the blame for that lies with the North Koreans, who didn't show much interest in a working-level process, especially once they had received the great bonus from their perspective of a one-to-one leadership summit with President Trump in Singapore. Mm. Uh, To mentioning President Trump, though, I think some blame does accrue to the United States. Trump didn't really have a great deal of interest in the details and didn't understand or didn't seem to, Mm -hmm. uh, he may have done but simply not indicated as much, didn't seem to understand the necessity of a working-level process to bring about uh, more durable agreements, uh, to bring greater understanding of the various issues in play. Uh, Rather, he jumped straight to the summit diplomacy, and that that has significant shortcomings.
0: Do you still believe in the four-step path that you outlined back then? I think the principle of a pathway is
1: important. Do I believe in the four steps that we outlined at the time? I'd like to say unconditionally yes, but I think further consideration uh, is required.
0: If you could just, for, for our listeners, recap briefly what those four steps are.
1: To formalize existing agreements in more detail, To get North Korea to the main... The the step that we suggested was to sign the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. Rather
0: than a sort of a unilateral moratorium declaration, which it can go back on.
1: Well, indeed. I mean, North Korea issued a unilateral moratorium in April of 2018 and has gone back on it in 2022. So Mm. there you are. Uh, Of course, North Korea could withdraw from a treaty that it ratified, too. We saw how North Korea treated the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty when it no longer suited it. But nevertheless... It is a more constraining form of agreement Mm -hmm. than simply uh, what Kim Jong-un says on a Saturday morning in Nodong Shinmun. So um, do I believe in that path?
0: Steps three and four, we didn't get to them yet. So number two was signing a comprehensive test ban treaty.
1: And then the third step would involve expanding some monitoring to encompass the entirety of North Korea's nuclear and long-range missile production capabilities to put some additional obstacles in the way of the resumption of these activities at a later date. So essentially to, to make it harder for North Korea mm. to renege because, as we know, North Korea does oh. renege on its promises. They do cheat. We have to accept that that will happen and therefore we have to build a system to mitigate the worst impulses of the North Korean side. And then the fourth step, would be the establishment of a full production cap and freeze on nuclear weapons, weapons weapons-usable materials, long-range missiles, and other programs and technology related to strategic weaponry. So that's the four-step plan. And you Uh asked me, Jacko, whether I stand by that plan. Yes. Instead of saying whether I do or do not, I think it's more important to say there there are some very important debates that now need to be had. Do we want to portray what amounts to an arms control regime with North Korea, right? If you're pushing North Korea, negotiating with them to sign the Nuclear Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, for example, that's part of an arms control negotiation. The question is, is your arms control negotiation the end in itself? Or are we still going to say that denuclearization ought to be our end goal? And that's more than just a semantic distinction, Mm. because it may have a material impact on the way North Korea engages with us in those discussions. Can we say, seriously, that we think North Korea is open to denuclearization? Can we? I don't know. I know that, for example, in a recent piece for Survival, the journal Survival, and maybe you could put a link in your show notes, Mm. uh, Professor Andrei Lankov suggested that we need to portray arms control as the opening steps in a denuclearization process in order to get buy-in from all the actors who are involved. But at the same time, you could argue that by saying that your end goal is denuclearization, you distort the discussion in the intervening period to such a degree that you achieve less than you might otherwise be able to. So what is your goal? Is it to have denuclearization at some point in the future? Or is it to achieve durable agreements that limit risk now? Is there a world in which you can do both? I'm skeptical, but I don't know for sure. Um, so we need to have these discussions mm. to, to frame whatever our future four-step or five-step or six-step path
0: may be. Right. I mean, I'm sure that North Korea wouldn't, w- would prefer not to start off with a process that ends with its complete unilateral denuclearization. So it's up to the other parties to decide if they want to change that, isn't it?
1: My personal view, which is not the view of... International Crisis Group necessarily yep. is that it is very, very, very unlikely that North Korea would agree to denuclearization under any readily foreseeable circumstances. I do not believe that South Korea, under a left or a right wing president, would abandon mm, partnership with the United States or would cease to accept the protection of American nuclear weapons in exchange for not developing its own as much as anything else. I don't believe those things would happen, and therefore I find it very difficult to imagine denuclearization at any point in the future. Yes, given that North Korea isn't going to unilaterally denuclearize, we, outside of North Korea, have to think about what kind of agreements we might be willing to make that could facilitate security and stability in the region short of North Korea's collapse, which would presumably bring about denuclearization or something like it, um, or the the denuclearization of North Korea with the regime still in place, which mm. is really rather unlikely.
0: The ICG tries to engage with governments and policymakers uh, to avoid wars and conflicts. Out of the three countries, the three major sort of central actors here—North Korea, South Korea, the USA—have all three of them listened to and equally ignored the ICG's advice.
1: Taking them in order. North Korea does not have a culture of listening to the international community shall mm. we say and they have not engaged icg's advice uh, it has not been reflected in their policy decisions
0: without giving too much away how, what's the i mean how do you even communicate with them do you just email them reports or send stuff to their office in north in new york
1: we've had meetings with them in the past
0: Okay, so they know of you and—I mean, they know of the organization and, and it's met with they them. They know of the
1: organization and some people in it. Okay. The United States, as a, just as, as with all members of the sort of the international liberal order— Yeah. —European countries, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and so on and so forth— they all listen to and heed uh, ICG advice as, as, as they, uh, they wish. South Korea is an, probably the most interesting case— mm. Because there is a reticence, probably born of nationalism, there is a reticence to accept the participation of Mm non-Koreans in issues relating to inter-Korean dynamics. So there is, or has been thus far, an inbuilt reluctance to engage with ICG or any um, Mm. international organization, I would say. So that's the most interesting case. You would expect South Korea to be very energetically
0: engaged. Right, because as you said before, that the uh, that Moon understands President Moon understands that he's part of a, a yeah. network of, of different organizations, including the Alliance, the OECD, the United Nations, right. et cetera, et cetera. And yet here we have a case where there is an international organization that, that doesn't fit into that uh
1: Yes. And that is not to say that North Korea and South Korea are in any way comparable on this metric. Mm. South Korea engages with us far more energetically. Multiple government departments engage with us compared with North Korea, of Mm. course. But when it comes to the crunch, South Korea still sees, rightly or wrongly, still sees inter-Korean relations as solely a Korean concern.
0: Now, that's that's true for inter-Korean relations. What about sort of more broadly in terms of uh, uh, peace and denuclearization talks with North Korea and other actors like the United States, China, Japan, sometimes Russia?
1: Mm, South Korea uh, was a member of the six-party talks, engages actively in those multilateral discussions, yes.
0: Okay. So it's just in the area of inter-Korean relations that it's not really interested in having input from other players?
1: It would prefer not to. I would hesitate to say it's not interested at Mm. all, but it would prefer not to.
0: You uh, predicted in our uh, January 2019 podcast that the uh, window of opportunity on the Korean Peninsula would extend through 2019 and into 2020, and that this period would be mostly quiet, and when you say quiet, that means no provocations, uh, provocative behavior from North Korea. Uh, That turned out mostly to be true, with the exception of some harsh rhetoric aimed at President Moon from Kim Jong-un's sister Kim Yo-jong, and of course the June 2020 blowing up of the inter-Korean liaison office which was still quite new when we last spoke. Do you stand by your prediction, or would you see the, the blowing up of the liaison office as not being something really substantially important?
1: I think the blowing up of the liaison office is a very interesting case. I don't know how important it is or was, but it does stand as a bit of an outlier a little bit from what was going on at the time. You know, when we recorded our previous podcast, I said that the period of quiet, the window of opportunity, would extend into early 2020. Uh, So summer 2020 wasn't technically part of Uh. it. (laughs) So I I make my excuses there. But uh, just in general, I think it happened as I and so many others predicted at the time. But then in 2020, we had the Black Swan event of the COVID-19 pandemic, which threw all the cards up in the air. And made predicting what North Korea would or mostly wouldn't because it basically shut its borders down and stopped engaging with, with anyone really
0: for a couple of years. Still now, right?
1: Um, yes. W- yes. Some limited
0: trade with China, but really...
1: Limited trade with China, but even before that limited trade began, North Korea engaged in cultural diplomacy with China mm. from the June of 2021, uh. Uh, marking the two-year anniversary of the, the summit's between Xi Jinping and mm. Kim Jong-un, there was a, there was, this was this is small beer in the grand yeah. scheme of things, but there was a, a photo um, exhibition in Beijing and the, the North Korean ambassador to China wrote an op-ed in the People's Daily and the the, the Chinese ambassador to North Korea penned mm. an op-ed for Nodong Xinmun. Right. So we can say that the reopening to China, not to Chinese people, yeah. but to, to China more broadly speaking, happened in the middle of 2021. But otherwise, no, there hasn't been a great deal of engagement with anybody else. Mm. And we saw some rather radical acts of disengagement, such as the shooting and burning of a South Korean, putatively a South Korean defector, Mm. in the West
0: Sea. That was quite dramatic. It was extraordinary, yes. Uh, We also spoke last time about the possible reopenings of Mount Kumgang Tourist Resort and the Kaesong Industrial Complex. You said that they were... Uh, if I recall correctly, not of great economic importance to North Korea, although Kaesong was the greater of the two. Uh, In the event, neither has happened, and Kumgang-sung, the the facilities there, seem to be in the process of being dismantled unilaterally by North Korea uh, to the protests from South Korea. What do you make of it all?
1: When North Korea targets South Korean investments in North Korea, I tend to see that as being the... The equivalent of a missile test for the international community in that it exercises South Korea's politicians greatly because that means investments by South Korean business people and major corporations are being either demolished or expropriated by the North Koreans. You know, in the past, they've done things like quote unquote freezing South Korean assets mm. in the Gang region, they have threatened to nationalize the Kaesong industrial complex or, or, or demolish some of the infrastructure in the Kaesong industrial complex or take away the, the, the buses and use them for local transportation or anyway, whatever it may be. Mm. These kind of threats and actions have been taken in the past and they are very good at causing consternation in South Korean politics, uh, dividing South Korea's business people from the government potentially, um, but also bringing South Korea to the negotiating table if and when that's what north korea wants to do so i see it yes as the equivalent of let's say a medium range
0: ballistic missile launch mm. in inter korean relations uh, do you have an icg report on korea coming out in the near term future uh, we have commentary in the works
1: but at the moment the research for the next report hasn't been completed so i cannot i cannot give you any further details on that
0: okay well uh, where are we now in, in april 2022 there's been uh, a lot of attention Uh, in recent months on missile tests by North Korea, speculation that it it may launch a uh, reconnaissance satellite in orbit, perhaps even before this episode is released, uh, and maybe even a seventh nuclear test. Is that an excessive focus on ephemeral phenomena, Chris? What does an an analyst such as yourself, who tends towards institutionalist explanations, focus on to make sense of the level of risk? There's no way we can call
1: a rocket launch, a reconnaissance satellite, maybe even a nuclear test, maybe even a strategic nuclear weapon, something like that. We cannot call these ephemeral phenomena. These, these actions mean that North Korea is taking great strides towards achieving its military goals, and that military uh, is threatening to South Korea, and it's, it is in principle threatening to, to the United States. It's certainly threatening to Japan. So we can't call them ephemeral phenomena, but when we are, for example, looking at the level of risk on the Korean Peninsula, we've seen 10 or 11 missile tests since the beginning of the year. Very North Korea is, quote unquote, raising tensions on the Korean Peninsula. There's a lot of missile tests, even mm. by North Korean standards. So let's be clear about that. Yeah. But the the balance of power, the the institutions that govern relations on the Korean Peninsula and further afield haven't meaningfully changed. And therefore... The risk of uncontrollable escalation hasn't really changed either. Only the risk of miscalculation mm. may have changed. By anybody? Uh, potentially by anybody responding to North Korea or a North Korean response to military exercises mm. in South Korea. You know, you, there are several permutations for this. But the more actions people are taking, the more actions that actors are taking on the Korean Peninsula the higher the risk of miscalculation. Mm -hmm. I don't think the risk of intentional conflict has meaningfully changed.
0: Do you see a seventh nuclear test as likely in coming weeks or months? And if so, what value does it add to the sixth test that took place almost five years ago in 2017?
1: My argument thus far has been that there's relatively few incentives for North Korea to return to nuclear testing Mm -hmm. because they have so far done six nuclear tests that puts them in a, a club alongside India and Pakistan. And India and Pakistan, Pakistan in particular, offers a potential comparison case that North Korea can use to, to, to try and work out how it might be able to achieve its goal of remaining a nuclear-armed state whilst also not having its economy greatly constrained by international sanctions agreement. So I think there's a lot of value in them not returning to nuclear testing. Kim Jong-un said in 2018 that North Korea had completed its nuclear deterrent, and therefore it did not need to test anymore. Now, Kim Jong-un's words only have a certain amount of value. We shouldn't take them at face value, and we Mm. shouldn't assume that they remain always true. But it would be useful for North Korea if it wished to be a nuclear-armed, normal actor in the international economy, it would be useful for North Korea not to return to testing. But... If North Korea has new forms of nuclear
0: weapon, like a strategic, what do you call it, a battle, tactical battlefield tactical nuclear weapons, mm. yes,
1: that it, then it might need to test them. Mm. Partly because they're untested, and partly right. because it can't simulate nuclear tests very well because it doesn't have the 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 capacity to do that. Right. So it might be, and uh, you know, I don't take credit for this insight. It's come from many of my colleagues. It might be that they simply need to do it to test new weapons and find out how they work because they cannot simulate that.
0: And there have been signs or they have they have made statements about uh, what doing some tunneling at Pungeri, haven't they, that that suggest that that would be a place where they would test, you know, they have tested nuclear weapons before, they might do it there again.
1: Well, I think they would have to do it there again because they don't have any viable alternatives, but it's a risky business and that was another factor feeding into my assessment that they might well conclude that it's not a good idea, which is that they've done a large amount of damage, geologically speaking, environmentally oh. speaking, to their nuclear test site um, since they started testing. And at some point, the damage may lead to greater environmental harm, mm. which um, which wouldn't be good for anybody, um, but most, most pertinently the North Koreans themselves. Uh, so that's another reason why they might consider it to be an unwise decision to return to nuclear testing, but uh, we we shall have to wait and see. we we'll have to wait and see.
0: Uh, when you talked a, a moment ago about uh, the possibility, it, with more and more actions on the peninsula, the possibility for miscalculation becomes greater. Would you include uh, ROC-US combined defense exercises that are usually held in spring uh, around this time every year? Would you include that in that list of activities that should probably be best be avoided in order to not... Lead to a possible uh, miscalculation.
1: Avoided is much too strong of a word, but should be should be managed. You have to achieve alliance readiness. You have to achieve interoperability. You Mm. have to let people test and yes, to 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 test the systems, to test the 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 people, to make sure that everything works properly. I think it would be better to to compare those exercises with, for example, North Korean short range missile Mm. tests, for example which are threatening, right? A short-range missile can still reach Seoul. So we're not, we're not talking about things that don't matter here. Right. Um, but we generally don't respond or with any actions against yep. North Korean short-range missile testing. So we have to understand that the North Korean military t- uh, tests and does exercises too, right? North Korea never stopped doing its winter drills mm. um, during any of this period. So we have to understand that both sides need to maintain their military readiness but we should just do so at a scale and with a visibility and with a PR approach that mitigates the risk of misunderstanding.
0: I was interested to learn uh, maybe a year or two ago that uh, if it wasn't for, like, what would you call it, Combined Forces Command, or anyway, the, the, the US and, and the ROK, if it wasn't for them informing North Korea that exercises were taking place, North Korea would have no way of knowing because they, they don't have an eye in the sky, they can't see these things. Uh, I found that interesting.
1: Well, yes, maybe that's so, although North Korea has been developing its drone reconnaissance capacity, True. right? Rather than, rather than a military reconnaissance satellite, mm. um, which the United States believes uh, is just cover for developing North Korea's intercontinental ballistic missile technology, rather than that, which is a technological big lift for North mm. Korea, uh, maintaining and improving its drone-based reconnaissance capacities, is a very sensible decision for them and they may well be able to work out that these uh, exercises are taking place even if they were not signalled on social media. But as it happens, they get tweeted out now anyway. So North Korea doesn't
0: need to worry about it. So when you mentioned earlier that uh, exercises should be managed both in, well, amongst other things in terms of public relations, how should North Korea, what's the best way that North Korea should be informed about exercises happening?
1: Through back channels, through Panmunjom, through military hotlines. And uh, Yeah, through public messaging too. I mean, in an ideal world, it would be lovely, uh, albeit wildly implausible, Mm. to have American and South Korean observers at North Korean winter drills and North Korean observers at South Korean ROK, US uh, joint military drills as well. Um, But I'm afraid we're really rather a long way away from that. Are invitations issued? I have no idea.
0: Now, the ICG, the International Crisis Group, has a a global outlook rather than a specifically career-focused one. So you have colleagues who are very busy on Putin's war in Ukraine and others looking at the rising friction between uh, the People's, Rep- People's Republic of China and the US. Uh, where does the Korean Peninsula, well, where is it situated in all of this? I guess it, it's hard for the world community to reserve some attention for Korea when there's so much else going on. Can can the world walk and chew gum at the same time?
1: The world can walk and chew gum at the same time, but there's a limit to how much gum you can fit in your mouth. Ah. Right? Um, a nice analogy. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> Um, the North Korea has been facing a problem for several years now. Since the collapse of the diplomatic process, which did not bring North Korea the sanctions easing that it wanted, North Korea has fallen down the list of international priorities because it isn't or wasn't mm. conducting intercontinental ballistic missile tests and it hasn't been conducting nuclear tests. So North Korea has fallen down the international priority list for everybody because it doesn't seem to be a pending risk or has not seemed to be a pending risk and i think we need to view north korea's efforts since january of this year or Mm -hmm. maybe even since september october of last year if Mm. you want to incorporate the testing that took place then for a short period as a way to jump back up the international agenda right to become a pending issue again to 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 get international actors to focus on the risk of deadly conflict in Northeast Asia. And ICG has the same kind of constraints as the international community does. Time, and resources. If North Korea isn't a risk to Northeast Asia, if there isn't a danger of deadly conflict on the Korean peninsula at any given point in time, ICG will quite rightly refocus its attention elsewhere. Mm. And inevitably, if North Korea manages to successfully return to the top of the international agenda, ICG will take more interest in North Korea too. Um, it's, it's all part and parcel of the same process.
0: What's the short-term goal for North Korea, as far as we can ascertain, in trying to raise itself up in the international standings? Is it to get that, that sanctions relief that it wants for its economy? War
1: is politics by the means. Uh, and when politics isn't working, diplomacy rather in this case, isn't working for North Korea, it turns to tensions raising to get itself back up the international agenda and generate leverage for talks because you may have noticed that no one is that excited about sitting down with north korea to to negotiate with them unless there is a sense that if we don't negotiate with them the the outcome could be worse so that is north korea it has a list of interests of course it does it, it knows presumably its leadership knows what they want to achieve Ultimately, or what is on their list, to do list of things to achieve in the future. But in the short term, they just need to build leverage for future negotiations.
0: Would you draw any lessons, warnings, or concerns from what is happening in Ukraine right now that might be applicable in the inter Korean situation?
1: I hope that the conflict in Ukraine offers a salutary lesson for North Korea. We sometimes hear, not from the North Koreans, but from, from analysts outside North Korea, that South Koreans have no love for their republic and might not be all that interested in fighting for it mm. in, a, in a future conflict. And uh, that seems to have been one of many miscalculations mm. that President Putin made about the Ukrainians too. Uh, and it turns out Right, that he they, thought that
0: the, the Ukrainians would either welcome him or at the very least just acquiesce.
1: Yes, they, they would crumple like a cheap suit. Yes that has not happened. Indeed, the exact opposite has happened. And I think there is is a lesson there. It's not the only lesson, but Mm. there's a lesson there for North Korea as
0: well. Mm. Some would say that North Korea, uh, one of its first lessons would be uh, don't denuclearize.
1: Yes. Well, that is another lesson, but I think they probably already learned that Mm. one elsewhere, didn't they?
0: (laughs) It's true. Uh, Well, that's where we're going to have to end it today. Thank you once again, Chris Green, for coming on the NK News podcast. Uh, listeners don't forget you can find chris on twitter at dest underscore pyongyang i should ask does that mean destination or destroy pyongyang
1: it means destination uh, i i i have been urged on several occasions to change my twitter handle and maybe i should and you've made me think that all the more <laughs> because i hadn't thought of destroy until today
0: <laughs> oh dear well, that was a, an unintended consequence uh ladies and gentlemen if you already have an nk news subscription take a look at our nk pro platform which offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can inquire about access and a free trial membership at membership at nknews.org today. Also, if you have any feedback or questions or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, go to Arius Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks and listen again next time.